0: to medium cool a movie podcast i'm your host austin glidden and as always you can find us on social media on facebook instagram and twitter by signing or typing in medium cool pod that's facebook.com backslash medium cool pod you can search medium cool pod on instagram we will pop up and at medium cool pod on twitter you can also email us at medium cool pod at gmail.com Uh, You can find me personally on Twitter at Austin Glidden and on Instagram at Austin Glidden. And you can search Austin Glidden on Letterboxd. I'm on there as well. Uh, Come say hi. Let me know what you think. Things like that. You know, just be nice. Anyways, uh, also, if you feel so inclined, please, uh, you know, follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. It helps us out a lot. And uh, hey, if you feel so inclined, rate and review the thing because that's super helpful too. So all that said... I was uh, able to get our friend JB from F This Movie, uh, our other friend Jake Bonelliere's dad, uh, and uh, he's been on here. He's done several shows with me. JB has, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I you know I basically was thinking of I got a screener. All right, let me start over because words you know are hard. Uh, I got a screener for Nightmare Alley. This is the Guillermo del Toro film that came out this year, just last Friday. And uh, I got it last week and I thought, man, it would be really cool because I know that on the Criterion channel, they have the original 1947 adaptation of the same book, Nightmare Alley, in 1947, that that film. So uh, it's like an old film noir, uh, really supposed to be pretty cool. So I was like, awesome, can't wait to watch this. I should find somebody to watch both movies with and we can talk about them individually and then maybe compare them or whatever. And then I thought, man, if anybody likes noir, I bet it's JB. Little did I know that Nightmare Alley is one of JB's favorite classic noirs. So, uh, yeah, he was like, hey, I'm going to see the Guillermo del Toro film. I'll totally do it. And that's what we uh, have here today. So I have uh, two long-form discussions with uh, with JB where we talk about the original Nightmare Alley. We talk about the Guillermo del Toro new film, uh, Nightmare Alley. And then we kind of talk about the two and how we feel about them. Uh, we just had a great time talking about it. It's a good, it's, man, these movies are wild. Of course, you're about to hear more about how I feel about them. I definitely check you, or check you, what? I definitely encourage you to go check them out. Um, regardless of how we feel, uh, because, uh, we need, I'll tell you this, the Guillermo del Toro film, the Nightmare Alley version that he did is better than probably anything in the theaters right now. And it sucks because it's not doing as well as other things, uh, or as well as things have done earlier this year. And so I would hate for the studios to get into some weird thing where they're like, Oh, people don't like movies made for adults. That's just very wrong. Uh, so, we should definitely support these things. So, go check out these movies. Uh, but either way, you're going to hear our thoughts on them. There are, I'm just going to let you know, uh, there are no spoilers. Uh, there is a point where JB asks if he can say a spoiler, but it ends up not being a spoiler, FYI. So, <laughs> anyways, all that to say, uh, next week I was supposed to have uh, uh, his son Jake on, actually. Uh, but I think we're going to have to reschedule that. So, I'm probably going to have some more 2021 cram. Stuff to talk about. I'll be talking about the uh, screener for the French Dispatch that I got. So I'll be able to talk about that movie. Um, I have screeners for Mass. Uh, I have a screener for Come On, Come On. Uh, I saw uh, Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move, which I would love to talk about. So I have several movies that I'm either about to watch uh, or I have seen. And so this will be a really good time, I think, to do kind of the last episode of this year uh, knock it out with some 2021 cram and then we're gonna start next year off uh hopefully with the bang I don't exactly know when we're rescheduling Jake's thing yet, but I'm gonna continue with the 2021 cram because as we know that over that overlaps with the next year uh in terms of you know uh, when I'm able to see certain movies because I don't get screeners for everything. and so um so yeah i, I i'm I'm looking forward to that uh, next year. We always do our top 10 a little later than everyone else. Uh, again, just so I can, I'm can, i able to see certain movies, like for example, I'm hoping to see Licorice Pizza next week, um, I, I doubt I'll get it in before next week's episode, so I'll want to talk about that as soon as I can, um, so yeah, I didn't get a screener for that one, so things like that, you know what I mean? So we'll be doing our top 10 uh, eventually, we'll be talking, I don't know, we have like a bunch of cool stuff planned, especially for the turn of the year Uh, So definitely come back and hang with us. I want to go ahead and jump over to my conversation with JB, though, uh, where we talk about both Nightmare Alley films. But we're going to start with the 1947 classic. Let's see what JB's doing. All right, everybody, we're here to talk today about Nightmare Alley from 1947 and uh, we're... Is uh, me and JB. That's the weird JB. Say hi for me. Hello. <laughs> That's so cheerful. Uh, for such a grim movie we're about to talk about, so cheerful. Um, so uh, no, no, no the, the- I,
1: I'm in a, I'm in a great mood. I was, I was looking for a job, and the local carnival said, now it's just part time, but they said they needed someone to play the geek. You know, just for a little while until he gets a
0: real geek. So I'm I'm pretty excited about that. It's like you were made for that job. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, anyways, um, so uh, Nightmare Alley, 1947, directed by Edmund Goulding, uh, written by Jules Furtherman, uh, based on the novel by William Lindsay Gresham, which is just uh, it's fun doing some research on this movie, especially when you get into all the like source material. Cast is Tyrone Power. Uh, who's normally known as like a swashbuckler and, you know, all those like adventure things till he comes back from the war. And then he gets to... uh, He was Zorro. My point, yeah. He gets to do all of those uh, kinds of things. Not this one. Uh, Tyrone Power, Joan Blondell, Colleen Gray, Helen Walker, and uh, Mike Mazurki. Love Mike Mazurki, by the way, especially uh, in Murder, My Sweet. Really fun. But anyways.
1: uh, He's in... in, um uh, some like it hot, too.
0: Oh, yes, yes. I completely forgot about that until you said that. Um, but anyways, it was released October 9, 1947, and the film follows the rise and fall of a con man, a story that begins and ends in a seedy traveling carnival. The carnival's aforementioned con man, Stanton Carlisle, also known as Stan, is fascinated by everything in the carnival, including a grotesque geek who prompts an observation from Stan that he, quote, can't understand how anybody could get so low. Stan works with Mademoiselle Zina and her alcoholic husband, Pete. And once a top-billed vaudeville act, Zina and Pete used an uh, ingenious code to make it appear that she had extraordinary mental powers until her attentions to other men drove Pete to drink and reduced them to working in carnivals. By working with all of these people, Stan is influenced and propelled into fame. And uh, though Stan is a successful mentalist, as they call him, His lies and deceit proved to be his downfall. Now, of course, all of this is based on Gresham's best-selling novel from 1946, a book that was not only you know uh, popular, you know, and and loved by some, but also a text that horrified people and was controversial and widely censored and condemned by those who found its subject matter shocking and disgraceful. Uh, how the film got made, honestly, is a miracle. Uh, <laughs> it certainly had to be censored to comply with production code, uh, you know, uh, rules or whatever. But JB, you confessed to me in a text that this version of Nightmare Alley was one of your favorite classic noirs, and I I pass this off to you by saying this: Do you, st- uh, if you stand by this, what puts this above so many others?
1: Well, one of the things you alluded to especially for 47, this film is dealing with things that most normal people didn't know a lot about, that the, the average American uh, is portrayed in this film as the rubes who frequent the carnival and who are there to be preyed upon by the games of chance and the, the sideshows and things. Um, it's pretty grim, for the late 40s. So grim, in fact, that I have read that Daryl Zanuck was not a fan of this film, did not want 20th Century Fox to make this film. It was sort of a gift to Tyrone Power since he was such a big star, and Tyrone Power was trying to change his image with this film and The Razor's Edge, another film Daryl Zanuck did not want to make. (laughs) Um, You know, the, the Criterion Collection, Uh, Blu-ray came out uh, a while back, and um, a lot of people rediscovered the film because I can remember a time not that long ago when this was very, very, very difficult to see. Absolutely. And I wound up seeing it the Chicago Film Society, which started decades ago in the auditorium of a bank on Irving Park (laughs) Road. This bank had a theater built into it. I don't know why. And they got permission to use it every Saturday. And these people are into film. They're very proud of the fact that all they do is show film. So the bank wound up closing. They were orphans. They kind of skipped around to different venues. Now they're at Northeast University once a month. They did some screenings at the Music Box, but I caught this at the Portage Theater. Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, And I was just amazed. Why is this being kept out of circulation? Uh, I'm guessing it came out on VHS, but I'm not even sure if it ever came out on DVD. Um, Sure, it's seamy. It's sleazy. But that's the point. And um, I was amazed because all I knew of Tyrone Power was – Mask of Zorro or Mark of Zorro. And also there's a film, a famous film where he plays a bullfighter. And I thought he was really, really magnificent, and that it was a film. Film noir is fond of showing you the underbelly of society, but for nineteen forty seven, this is really the underbelliest. I mean, this film really <laughs>
0: the um, underbelliest, yeah.
1: You know, talks talks about people who really have no uh, no real moral compass, and I think because I was unfamiliar with Tyrone Powers' work beyond his starring roles, I was sort of amazed at what a good actor he was or is, because he's really really good as Stanton Carlisle, um, going from almost a rube himself when he starts at the carnival and he's wearing that straw hat and that striped jacket and he, he has to go around and collect the, the cards or the money or whatever it is. And then you compare him a couple of years later when he opens in Chicago and he's really become a Sharpie. But of course, film noir warns us that there are Sharpies and then there are Sharpies and woe betide the man who thinks he's a Sharpie It's another great line from the movie quiz show of late. I've been thinking that all of the greatest things in movies in the last 20 years can be found in Robert Redford's film quiz show. If you're sitting in a poker game and you're wondering who the sucker is, it's you. (laughs) And Stanton Carlisle does not realize that um, until it's too late. Now, um, can i engage in minor spoilers
0: uh v- very minor um in large part too because i don't want to ruin anything for the new one and these are uh pretty this does parallel. not ruin some but this it, does not it, ruin something for the new one go for it
1: um okay. a couple weeks ago i caught it again on turner classic movies because now that the criterion collection thing came out turner classic movies has been showing it virtually once a month it's like oh i'm so glad this film is Back in circulation, that apparently uh, Daryl Zanuck did uh, convince the filmmakers to have the ending be slightly lighter than the ending of the book. So, whereas we do get the main character's ultimate fate, it's alleviated a tiny little bit by the last minute. Yes. At the last minute, I mean, literally the last 60 seconds of the film something happens that perhaps opens a door for some hope. Because um, from what I understand, the book is quite hopeless. And though I'm not, not familiar with the book and I've never read the book, I get the feeling that when we start talking about the remake, we can fairly well put our fingers <laughs> on two things that are in the book but that were deliberately left out of the Tyrone power.
0: version. 110% agree with you. I, I like if only, I,
1: be, if only because of the production code.
0: Yeah. 100. Yeah. Cause speaking of that, cause I'll come back around the Tyrone powers uh, power here in a second. Uh, but as you said, Zanuck had no interest in doing the film. So like, that's definitely something I, when I was doing my research, I loved, I loved learning that. Cause I was asking myself, how was this made? Like, that's what I wanted to learn was, what is the origin story of this movie? Because this seems so dark and so grim that even though I could feel that they took some liberties to make it lighter, like you said, it's still like at its core is darker than most film noir like, in terms of, like, what it's really getting down to. So, like, yeah, Zanuck didn't want to do it, but as you said, did it as a as a kind of a, um, a favor to Tyrone Power, basically, because he was trying to change his image, and Zanuck didn't want to lose his number one star, basically, so he wanted to make sure that this B-list movie, basically, got A-list production, right?
1: Exactly. And that's yeah. the great irony Dude. of the fact that Tyrone Power uh, threw his weight around uh, one of the things I read today suggested that this might be the highest budgeted film noir ever made because even though Zanuck really didn't want to make it, they were they were not going to put their, their big star into a C-list production. So they spent a lot of money on it to the point of building a full-size carnival on yeah. the lot. Um, so that was a very expensive set. Um, This film
0: had a high budget because Tyrone Power was a big star. Absolutely. And yeah, like you said, you can't let him be seen in these like low, but you can't make him look bad. And that was like the whole thing. And yeah, they took 10 acres of the back lot to make a real carnival, which is so crazy. So uh, and in the film, they used like a lot of real carnies that were like doing that work. I mean, you know, you get a lot of of those kind of realistic things. And on the Criterion channel where I watched it, but there are some supplements. And one of them was a guy who actually works as a carn, like he's a carney. He basically does what Tyrone Power does whenever he first comes in and announces things and gets people's attention to come over to the booths. He's a, and- he's a barker. There you go. Yep. You 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 can be the term terminology guy. <laughs> but he like he's like, this this is, for better or for worse, the carney life. Like this movie, yes, of course, there's cinematic embellishments, but it's like, no, this is like this anybody in the circus that watches this is like, oh yeah, that's that's a thing. That's just how it is. And so um, it's interesting to watch it with people who call it realistic or like, at least it's tackling uh, things that are very real to them. And, and going back to 1947 too, the production code office was definitely against this film, (laughs) like right off the bat. Uh, But once word got out that the, uh, the film was going to be made, the the studio received letters of protest, uh, you know, mostly for the treatment, not of all the darkness, not all the carnies, the treatment of religion, J.B., religion, because that is, of course, uh, tied in. And though I don't think anyone's making fun of, uh, I think that Tyrone Power's Stanton is clearly taking advantage of uh, the power that religion can give you. So um, because basically in the film, he he essentially creates his own religion almost around these like illusions of power that he has. So um, back to Tyrone Power here, though. Um, the, the great thing about Tyrone Power, I'm gonna pass this off to you. The great thing about Tyrone Power is that Stanton is a morally ambiguous heel, and he's our protagonist. And I love movies like um The Sword of Doom, you know, uh, which um I can't remember the dude's name right now, Nikadai, I think, or something, but he plays the bad guy, Toshira is in <coughs> um uh is in the film and he's the good guy, but you follow the bad guy. Have you ever seen The Sword of Doom, JB? No, I have not. You got to check this out. It's a great samurai flick. Um, I wish I could remember, for some reason I'm forgetting the filmmaker's name, but I'll, I'll tell you about it later. But anyways, you literally follow this psychopathic killer and you see heroes in it, but they're like supporting cast. You know what I mean? Like you're following this. I mean, in the opening scene this isn't really a spoiler, but I mean, in the opening scene, he just murders an old man, like, it's, and this is from, like, 1965 or so, or 62 or something, way, way, way back, so, uh, like, I love those movies, I even love stuff, which, again, all of these movies are very different than Nightmare Alley, but I'm making a point, even something like, um, uh, There Will Be Blood, it's like, Daniel Plain views a bad guy, like, okay, (laughs) Like, yeah, he's just a bad person from the beginning. Arguably, it's just in the beginning. The goodness that naturally comes out of him is still benefiting him. And until it's not right. And then he just like lets it go. Daniel Plainview's just a heel. Right. But we like l- a lot of people love that movie. And so, like, I love watching movies where you have basically a bad guy as, as that you have to wrestle with as an audience member. This guy's a bad guy why do I kind of feel like I want to like not support maybe, but like, I'm like amping him up. Like I want this guy to succeed. I want him to turn from the air of his ways. You know what I mean? Like I was on board until toward the, probably the last act I was on board with Stan still, even though he was doing terrible things you know, throughout the film. And I'm like, but you can do better buddy. <laughs> like, Well,
1: obviously a, a lot of that is Tyrone powers performance, But I love your analogy to There Will Be Blood because think about the opening sequence of There Will Be Blood. I think it's about 20 minutes with almost no dialogue. And that puts us, at least temporarily, on Daniel Plainview's side because he's trying to achieve something. And I think not only as the protagonist, as we're watching that movie, we would like him to succeed. And now think about where we start with Tyrone Power. Tyrone Power is trying to be a success in the carnival. And clearly he's the main character and clearly he's sympathetic. And so we would like him to succeed. I think both characters get to the point where in very different ways they're in over their head. But I think in the case of Nightmare Alley, by the time Tyrone Power is in it over his head, we're still sympathizing with him. And so we're still on his side because at first we were saying, I would like this man to be a success. And then we're saying, boy, he really stepped in it and he has no idea that he's out of his league. Again, I think it comes down to Tyrone Power's performance. I find the character very sympathetic, even though, like you said, he's awful.
0: <laughs> yeah, And what's funny, you know, we'll get to storytelling here in a second in terms of how the film's told, like the story's told. Because, of course, as like film, looking at it as film history, a lot of the storytelling devices that are used in this film are very common. Um, A lot of things are kind of brushed over or overlooked to an extent because the production code probably wouldn't like you digging into that too far. Or, you know, like like whether it be the relationships between... Um, what's, what's her name? Molly. Yeah. Uh, Stan, Stanton and Molly, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, like they, they clearly, you know, have a close relationship. They have clearly had sex <laughs> before yeah. marriage. Um, uh, but the film doesn't go into this thing, right? Um, you just kind of jump forward and they're kind of married, you know? So anyways, uh, but all that to say, I am going to bring up one thing that is, uh, I don't even know if I'd call it a criticism, but more of um, an observation that I still process, I guess. the This is clearly a rise and fall story. If anyone's ever seen the rise and fall narrative in a biopic or anything else, this kind of oft follows that to an extent. It just does it in slightly different ways enough to make it interesting, right? Like particularly interesting. But it's the jump, you, you already brought this up, it's the jump from him being at the carnival to being a top guy running his own show. You know what I mean? And I, how do you feel about this progression of the story? Because for me, when it happened, I was like, oh, wait, what? He's just here. And I'm curious how much weight you would put on that, or if you just thought it was done fine. Did you, any of the storytelling, not even just that specific part, did you find any of the actual, uh, well, I'm just going to keep using the same word uh, like a broken record, but the storytelling, was any of that problematic or rushed for you? Because there were a few moments where I felt uh, a little tugged. I don't know how to say that.
1: I, I like the jump because I think that sets up the expectation that Stan was a much better person back in the carnival, which he wasn't, than he is as the nightclub performer in Chicago. But it's not... The nightclub stand—that's the problem. In fact, I would suggest that if the film is saying anything, it's that the great Stanton should have stayed in that nightclub and done his little show.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: and yeah. and made some money and 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 uh, and stuck with Molly. As the remake makes more than abundantly clear, because I think the remake hits us over the head with it. It's when. Stanton starts believing his own bullshit. And in the terminology of the book starts doing a spook show. Yeah, There's a big difference between telling a woman what's in her purse, which is good fun in a nightclub and saying that you're going to materialize someone's dead relative. There's a world of difference between those two um, pursuits. And I would suggest that both movies and the book suggest that Stanton's downfall, and this I find interesting because um, Penn and Teller, the magicians have talked about this at length. And they've talked about Houdini, who in his lifetime tried to debunk mystics and the amazing Randy, who was a friend of theirs who tried to put the kibosh on this. They found that a lot of psychics start believing their own bullshit. A lot of psychics begin to think that they actually have powers. And that's a very big problem. Um, When Stanton starts to tell people that he can talk to their dead relatives, um, at this point, here I quote um, Penn and Teller, you're messing with the only thing that person has left, which is their memories. How dare you mess with grieving people's memories and play with their idea of how the universe works? Just for some fame and some money. Um, at the risk of offending people, at one point, uh Penn Gillette says, These people are literally motherfuckers. <laughs> they are fucking, they are fucking with your memory of of your loved ones for a cheap buck. Um, and so I think if anything, Stanton should have stayed in the uh, in the nightclub and done his little magic trick and been happy but of course Stanton is ambitious and we know about ambition in film noir.
0: yeah <laughs> dude one thing I like about what you're talking about here is at first I was like well, what's, what's the harm? He's like the nightclub part. I know what the harm yeah. is later, but in the nightclub where he starts talking like, cause at first he's uh, talking to Helen Walker's Lilith Ritter and uh, L- Dr. Lilith Ritter, who is a psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever. And she, she comes into the nightclub and she's trying to debunk much like what you were just talking about, trying to debunk um, Stanton's whole thing. And she, she kind of starts to put it together But then just to kind of shove her down a peg, he kind of, like, uses some of his skills, you know, natural, like, people skills to... Yeah, reading people. Yeah, and and just kind of reads her and, and knocks her down a peg. Then he immediately jumps over to a person at her table, and he starts essentially getting into that area of, like, that arguably bad area that like gray area where it's like, yo, you're doing the spook show, which for everyone listening, the spook show is when things get real. Like you have, you have the work right where you're working people over and you're doing this illusion or this, this, this game essentially. But the spook show is when shit gets real. Like you're, you're do you're going too far. You're making them believe too much. Like there's a difference like- between telling me what's in my pocket
1: and telling me that you're talking to my dead mother. The film is saying there's a world of difference between those two um, parlor tricks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so see, that was a great black and white example of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love that. So uh, I love that it made me wrestle with it for a second because I was like, but why is she so mad? Because at first it was like this guy seems so happy after he hears about it, like the guy at the table next to Lilith Ritter. For some reason, I'm, his name is escaping me. I'm trying to. Maybe it was, uh Ezra. No, no, no. Gr- not Grindel. It was uh, Crumbine or something. That, I don't remember how to say that. Right. But anyways, that. No, no, that- no, no. Crumb
1: Crumbine is Zena and Pete. That's their
0: last name. Oh yeah. Wait. You're right. No, you're right. I don't remember the dude's name, unfortunately. Um, I have like IMDb he's, he's open. And rich, I still can't find him. The rich, the rich stuffy man. The rich stuffy man. Yeah, this we not not the, the guy, not the rich stuffy man, man at the end. <laughs> no, he's he's a much richer. He's a much richer stuffy man. Yeah, but anyways, end. yeah, this guy, this guy, uh, yeah, he seemed like I don't know, like so fulfilled, and I was like, oh man, Stan, I might be on your side, and then it goes real bad, JB, real bad, where I'm like, what was I thinking? This is terrible. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that, that part of it is really great. I, I absolutely love that this takes place in uh, like a, a circus, uh, and it's not the type of circus you think of with, you know, big animals and, uh, people doing trapeze acts and, you know, all of like, I don't know, like the, the very cliched traditional, yes, that exists, but that's not what we're seeing. Like you were talking film noir, we see the underbelly. This is the underbelly of this world. And yes, we see Xena's trick, but we also see what it's like whenever the lights go down, everyone goes home, and we see them, uh, you know, alcoholics abusing, you know, <laughs> uh, al- some people being given alcohol to pacify them. Um, you know, like this this really just sad life underneath yeah. uh, uh, the the main thing. And this is part of what pushes Stan to want to be better than that. Because he doesn't want to just stay in this two-bit carnival, he wants to, which is
1: which is something I think we can identify with, yeah. And who makes him a character that has our sympathy at least for a little while, at least at the beginning? He does. He is trying to get out.
0: Yeah, and I, I think this version in particular does a really good job at building up and establishing Stan, uh, with the exception of some of those jumps. But I like your perspective on the jump, actually. Uh, I like the, that that does separate him from the carnival and then him in that kind of later, that popular mentalist. I do like that. But the I, I think this film actually does a really good job of building up that character, the progression that we see Stan go through. Uh, we'll talk about comparisons when we get there. <laughs> um, but the scene in this that really works for me is the scene where the sheriff early on comes into the circus to shut it down. And it's in that moment that we see Stan's true power, right? Before that, we don't really see it much. He just talks, he tells us in narration that he's a natural, or maybe he's telling, uh, mm-hmm. maybe, I forget, he might be telling Xena. Either way, we we as the audience are hearing uh, Stan tell us about how he's naturally good at kind of, you know, manipulating people and doing these things. And then when the sheriff shows up, we actually get to see that full force how he can talk through and read people and we start to really pick up on that. I think that is so well done in this version. So well done. Um I agree. I, I'm going to I'm going to jump into something else but are there any scenes that we can talk about cuz I don't want to ruin too much here. Uh but are there any scenes that really stand out stand out to you where you're like, "Oh, like that's a signature scene for you. That's like a pivotal moment."
1: I thought um and obviously, I saw the original before the remake. Same. The scene where Stan actually tries to manifest the rich man's lover. Yeah. Um, I thought was done really well. Um, I would argue that it's done better in the Tyrone Power version than in the remake, but we'll get to the remake eventually. Um, there's a moment where visually the director presents it as if Stan has pulled it off, which is quite a trick because we know that the mark is being taken, but the way that it's filmed and especially the music under it, it's like something from Song of Bernadette. For just a second, the director lets us see through the eyes of the mark and at least for a few minutes, the mark thinks that Stan has accomplished it and it's chilling. I mean, it's its really very disturbing. It, it, the director makes clear to us that that someone could be tricked by this. Yes. Um, that's the scene I always remember. Yeah. The way that's presented.
0: Yeah. Uh, that it might just is, be
1: the score. See. It might just be the score.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing, too, is I think uh, director Edmund Goulding, as I brought up before, like it's like that dude did random st- like why is he even doing this movie you know what I mean and then whenever you do some research like because I was trying to think like what connects this guy because if you look at if you look at his uh, IMDb page you don't have to go there uh, right now but listeners you're welcome to um, but you know he he did like some uh, good like work but just nothing like noir you know he was more yeah. he was actually known as a, a a women's director he did like melodramas. You know what I mean? So it's like why is he doing this? But then you learn if you do a little bit of research just digging in that he was like he struggled with drinking and drugs. Um I love this rumor, which is why I'm throwing it in, but it was never confirmed to my knowledge, but it's also rumored that he used to host wild bisexual orgies. <laughs> Uh, in, in the 30s. Um, and in 1932, he actually had to leave the country due to two women being hospitalized after one of his parties, which is super messed up. Um, but MGM apparently kind of, like, covered that up and got him um, and got MGM him was good at that in the 30s. Oh, yeah. So it's no surprise, you know, after you kind of learn a bit about his dark past that Goulding would have be able to take on a picture like this and have some connection with it, uh, especially whenever you've seen the film, you know? Um, but uh and seems to have
1: some insight into the dark side <laughs> yeah
0: and I, yeah i just i just think uh i think he does really well here and that scene that you just described is a great example Uh the scene i talked about with the sheriff is a great example the sequences uh with uh where stan has the blindfold on and his big uh in his big time shows you know what i mean i think those are super well done um so yeah all, all of that is great and i think the vision comes across especially with the Cinematographer, I, fi- I find the way that this movie looks interesting because it doesn't really look like a traditional noir all no. the time. Because noir typically has super contrasting black and whites a lot of times, right? Like a lot of times you get these harsh shadows and there's a lot of design in what is being seen and what is not. And in this, they intentionally fog the circus at night, for example, so the lights mm-hmm. catching that, so you're not getting those super contrasty looks. It looks awesome though. Like I love the way that the circus looks particularly like whenever he's there early on. Um but like yeah, you don't get a lot of those there's some, but the cinematographer also wasn't uh a film noir guy. Like he didn't do film noir. He did some crime pictures uh prior to that and maybe some precursors to what we would consider film noir here. Um so maybe he was influenced uh or he influenced them to some degree. Um But yeah, I I just absolutely, just 100% was into the way that this looks. Even though I love traditional film noir, there was just these little differences. Did you pick up on any of those that stand out to you? I'm not sure if the
1: filmmakers did this deliberately, but it seemed to me to be ironic that even with the fog uh, playing with the contrast, the carnival stuff, looks more like a film noir than the Chicago stuff.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Because, because in the nightclub that, that looks like any film made in the forties where I really see the influence of noir and maybe it's the filmmakers conspiring to give us some foreshadowing is Lilith's office is classically shot like a film noir. Yeah. Um, you could watch the movie and wonder why a psychiatrist would want their office to be that dark. Um, (laughs) Especially toward the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, that maybe it was the filmmaker's attempt to say that as opposed to the nightclub or the carnival, the place that Stan really has to look out for is that, that doctor's office. Um, Because that's where I really see the film looking like a classic noir. And in very few other places, it's her office where we get the high contrast
0: black and white. Well, speaking of, speaking of, uh, uh, Lilith Ritter, who, the, the doctor that you're talking about in this office, uh, John Ritter's wife, uh, John Ritter's mother, by the way. Really? No, it's a character name. I'm joking. I know you are. Okay. Anyways. (laughs) Um, so, uh, I, I love that film noir. Something that is in uh, a, a film noir, it's a very popular idea. Uh, you can uh, people come to mind as soon as you hear it, the femme fatale. Yes. And I love that. Usually in noir, it is the femme fatale who instigates the downfall of the male protagonist and gets them into the situation. But in Nightmare Alley, Stan is the femme fatale. <laughs> Or or one could say, I read this somewhere, the om fatale, which would be the opposite. Um, and uh, he uses his good looks and manipulation skills to get what he wants. And he's he dragging is, people along with him. <laughs> he's definitely that
1: for the first three quarters. 75% or so, about three quarters of the way into the film, we discover who the real femme fatale is. And again, that's part and parcel of Stanton, um, not knowing what he's stepping into that Stanton is out of his league. Um, and the film is going to spend its last quarter, uh, showing him what the consequences of, um, of his actions are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that you, you, 100% went the direction I was going because I love that you don't get that until later and I'll leave the rest. I'll leave the rest for uh, our viewers to go watch. You can, you can see this if you have the criterion channel. Uh, That's how I watched it. Of course you can uh, rent it places. I'm sure there are places you can rent it um, and you can buy it as well. Uh, Any last thoughts on this one before we jump forward, we can come back and talk about certain things on this. Uh, whenever we get there. But anything else you want to add to this before we uh, move on to the remake?
1: It's one of my favorite films, noir, and I would urge all of your listeners um, to seek it out. It's amazing. And you'll sit there and watch it and continually shake your head that this damn thing was made in 1947. Yeah. It seems more like a film from 1957.
0: It it, re- it really looks great, and especially if you've seen a lot of film noir, this just looks – I don't want to say better because, again, I love the way film noir looks, but this just looks like the higher budget that, Ty- that Tyrone Power yeah. was able to get. Costume, and, um,
1: set, cinematography,
0: music. Oh, it's, my God. It's a- and, and, it's an A-list production. Colleen Gray's Molly, when she has the electricity between her fingers, looks awesome. Oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> ah, it's so... I love that part. Anyways, uh, listeners, we're going to come back in just a second. We're going to talk about uh, the Guillermo del Toro Nightmare Alley that just came out last Friday uh, and give you our thoughts there before finally, before we close out, kind of comparing the two a bit. and Because I'm curious where uh, JB and I will fall in terms of which one we prefer. We're going to talk about the 2021 version next. All right, Nightmare Alley 2021 came out last Friday, December 17th. It's written uh, and directed by Guillermo del Toro. Also, writing credit goes to Kim Morgan, based on the same novel as the 1947, of course, by William Lindsay Gresham. Uh, The cast is crazy. Dude, I don't even have everyone on here because I was looking through it today, and I was like, I didn't even write everyone down. Bradley Cooper. It It is a big parade of your favorite character actors. Yeah, and a lot of them will just pop up for a second, too. So it's like uh, like Tim Blake Nelson is in it for like T minus five seconds. One, yeah, it's like one so scene. short. But anyways, Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, uh, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard, uh, I put Kinkins, so I meant Jenkins, uh, Rooney Mara, Ron per- <laughs> I can't get over that, it sounds like his porn name, but anyways, uh, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, love me some Ron Perlman, I'll come back to that in a minute, David Strathairn, dude. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Uh, the cast is so good here. I won't even lie. I, I have I have one thing about the cast I'll come back to later. Uh, but like I said, this came out last Friday. And uh, as I already said, it's an ambiguous... It's about uh, an ambiguous young Carney with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words. Uh, and he hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. We've heard this before. I already gave a synopsis for the original... Uh, this one is, I would say you know, uh it, I mean, it is a remake because there was an adaptation before, but it really does feel like a readaptation uh, of the book not that they're trying to do the Goulding movie and more that they're trying to tackle this in my opinion and I, and I'll pass that off to you in a second jB that They're doing
1: season. that they're doing the Gresham movie because as I alluded to before, I have not read the book so I might be full of it. but my spidey sense tells me that, Stanton's backstory, which is in the remake but not the original, is from the book. Yeah. And the ultimate fate of the first two characters that Stanton does a spook show for, I'll bet you dollars to donuts that that's in the book and it's in the remake, but it's not in the original because man, the production code would yeah. not have allowed that.
0: Well, yeah, um, this one, this one fortunately is not held back by censorship and, uh, and a comparatively prudish culture. Uh (laughs) And and Austin, you know, the scene I'm talking about 100% two two of his
1: customers take his, take what he's told them to a strange
0: degree. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Leave it at that. And we will come back to that because I think that's like really important. Even if it comes off as shocking in the movie. Um, I I think it's like super important.
1: I also think it's really important that Guillermo del Toro has given us the main character's backstory, which I believe in the remake makes it much more difficult for Bradley Cooper to get our sympathy.
0: Well, so see, that's the pivotal change. And I definitely want to dig into that a little bit as we focus on just the 2021 movie here, listeners. And then we will in a moment do a little compare. All right. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but JB, Uh, We know you love the original. We know it's one of your favorite noirs. Uh, But would you consider Del Toro's remake a neo-noir? And if so, how good is it? Well,
1: uh, people who are annoying and who are sticklers for this type of thing (laughs) would tell you that if the film was made after 1959, it has to be a neo-noir because one of their definitions of the genre is that it lasted from here to here. 41 to 59. It's true. It's true. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I would would rather not get into that discussion because it's boring. Um, Apparently, there will be some screenings of this film in LA in black and white. Interesting. And I'm guessing or hoping that Del Toro makes that an option on the Blu-ray. Yes. Because I would like to see it in black and white because I know that if you watch a color film and just dial the color out on your TV monitor, that's not the same as, say, what um, when, when The Mist was available in black and white. Yeah. It's a whole, you, you can't just dial the color out. That, that's not what we're talking about. I would like to see this film in black and white. However, this is a beautiful, beautiful film. And as every critic on Earth has already said, it is so visually dazzling. It's just, it's a coffee table book of a movie, and every single shot looks like some sort of oil painting. That made me glad it was in color, because that was one of my favorite parts of it. Say what you want, Del Toro is a masterful director he gets good cinematographers he knows how to stage a scene he knows how to his films are beautiful i mean think of shape of water or pan's labyrinth they're they're visual feasts yeah um so i like that part of it a lot i would i would venture to guess that this was the film i was looking forward to the most this year really yeah from the time i found out that they were making it i guess they started And then they had a stop because of COVID. And then six or eight months later, they picked it up. And ironically, for some reason, maybe scheduling, they filmed the second half first. Interesting. (laughs) Then they had the COVID break. And then they went back and filmed the carnival stuff. And I found that interesting when I found that out. Because I think the first half of the movie is much, much better than the second half. Um, I had big problems with the second half, um, mostly uh, because of its pace. I wondered why um, this film needed to be 40 minutes longer than the original. And that 40 minutes is clearly contained in the second half. Yeah. Because the first part, the carnival stuff, that just whizzes by. I'm, I'm a big fan of the carnival stuff. I just wondered why um the the pace gets so pokey in the
0: second half well i want to i want to touch on that that's my
1: biggest that's my biggest problem with the film
0: yeah well i want to touch on that because in the original oh we're not comparing yet i'll I'll come back to that okay Uh, in in this one I i i felt that it was like i felt like i was being um i don't know like jerked around like it would be like really fast and then it's slow down really fast and slow down. So like there are scenes early on and I'll draw comparisons later, but there were scenes early on where, for example, Bradley Cooper Stan is uh, doing the thing where he's walking around pick, getting questions for Xena to do her trick. But you see it like one time. And I don't think it establishes him as a good mentalist or, or, or an aspiring or, or someone who could be as well as, the original. I know I'm getting into comparisons. I'm sorry. I, I don't know how else to talk about it because it's the only comparison. Like I don't. I don't know how to talk about it without the comparison. But my point is you're, like you're taking you're taking issue with what they dwelled upon. That's
1: it. Yes. And there's a lot of dwelling upon things in the second half, and what was not dwelled upon in the first half, which should have been. What you're talking about. Showing Stan as a as a as a beginning carnival worker yes. and
0: learning the ropes, a little bit more of that would have helped. Yes, same thing with with Pete. Same thing with like most of those characters. You know what I mean? Um, and so I, I felt like you know a lot of these things are like super important. You know, and 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 it's also important to remember. I watched the original film on a Tuesday. And then I saw this on a Friday. So I saw them very close (laughs) together. Right. I I almost watched them like the next (laughs) day apart. Yeah. Yeah, Not quite back to back, but like one night and then the next night. Um, But as I told you, I had a problem with the screening app that I had to use for this. Disney owns Fox listeners. So I had to use a Disney app to watch my screener. And it was just like, I don't know. It was so annoying. The point is this. Uh I didn't get to watch them as close as I could but I did have like I can't not think of the original I just watched when I'm watching it. So the- yeah. I want that to be very clear. That as I talk about this, I recognize that uh I had both of them like in mind as I'm watching the new one, you know. And I
1: I wondered and what I compare it to is something that I will now name the Blade Runner uh conundrum that unless you're 20 or 25 or younger, my guess is the first time you saw Blade Runner, it had that narration that everyone hates. So it's very easy to say, oh, I prefer the version without the narration because you've seen it with the narration. So you can't unsee that. As I sat through the remake, I had the original so in my (laughs) frontal lobe. Yeah. I kept wondering if I was losing patience with the second half of the film
0: because I knew where it was going. That's what I'm saying. And
1: I wanted it to get there faster.
0: Yeah, well, I will say this. Obviously, this needed to be, because of the additions, if you're going to develop them, it, it needed to be longer than the hour and 50 minutes of the original. It did not, however, need to be two and a half hours long. I agree with you there. Okay. <laughs> Like adding 40 minutes to areas that I would argue did not need to, didn't need that as much as other areas. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm 100% with you there. Uh, but yeah, so I, you I know, guess at one
1: point, Richard, Je- at one point, the Richard Jenkins character says enough of this nonsense, materialize her. And and given what Stanton has put him through, I think we in the audience are saying the same
0: thing. Enough of this. Show yeah. him this woman. You know, you said that you, you liked the first half better than the second. And I get that. Uh, I loved the, the first half as well. And then there was this kind of lull. Because, again, I had the, the the old one in mind. We can't divorce those two because we know them both well. You know, I knew them well because I watched them close together. But, man, I got to say, the the opening, because like you said, all of the opening circus stuff, it was so visual. Like whenever they're looking for the geek because he escapes, really, yeah. un- it's like the first thing that Bradley Cooper does in the circus. And when he has to walk through that, like, candy cane spiraled, like, moving cylinder. It's like a cylinder, fun house. Yeah, he's in, like, this it, fun you, house. Have to
1: walk, you have to walk through the mouth of the devil to get inside.
0: Yeah. Oh, and it, like, opens. Oh, man. I yeah. was like... Who? What circus had enough money to make this shit? But anyways, it looks awesome. Okay. Oh yeah. And I loved it. And when he finds him, I'm like, oh man, that's great. Again, not a spoiler. Of course, they find the geek. But my point is, um, man, that whole thing, I just loved that so much. Uh, I all of the opening. Uh, again, I had some f- development focuses and and pacing things. Yeah. But like overall, I was a big fan of that first half. But the, the other thing that uh, I really love beyond the first half is I actually was a huge fan of the end. And I can't talk about the end very much, but I'm going to speak to you in a way that will kind of make sense here. Yes. Um. So whenever – when we have Richard Jenkins' Grindle, I actually was so ha- – I didn't know I needed this in my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I needed Richard Jenkins as Grindel in my life, but I not only do I love Richard Jenkins as Grindel, and I love him in general, but I also love Holt M- uh, McCallany as Anderson, his like right hand man who I only know from like Mindhunters. I think I think he was in something another movie I saw from like since Mindhunters came out or whatever uh, I, can't I saw it. Remember- I
1: thought Anderson was a great example of the thespian motto, play well your part, and that all honor lies. He makes such an impression in a part that could have been nothing or a stock character. And I also thought Richard Jenkins was fairly unrecognizable under the beard. Didn't know it was him thought, at first. Yeah, I thought they did a real good job because, you know, if if you love movies, you should love Richard Jenkins. And I think he benefits from the fact that in this film he doesn't look like
0: Richard Jenkins. Yeah. Oh my, dude, all all of it. Now, I, I, and I want to touch on I want to touch on the manifesting of the rich man's dead loved one thing because you talked about you like the original better, and though yeah. I I like what's being done narratively in the original better, but dude, I can't lie, I really love all of the Richard Jenkins story arc in this movie. <laughs>
1: Like right, because because in 2021, Del Toro can actually get darts in the, the entire panoply of this guy may have loved Dory back then, but that has turned into a very different attitude about young ladies. Yeah. And and at the very end, because through through almost all the film, he's sort of presented as reserved and obsessed um boy when he reveals
0: his his true colors it's really disturbing yeah and dude i i just thought that was so awesome and i'm gonna say this very vaguely and then i'm gonna hop away because i don't want to get into spoiler territory here but i'm talking actually i will bring i will bring that up by pivoting into something else that i want to talk with you about because we're already talking about cast members so i'm going to jump into bradley cooper real quick And I'm going to use what I was about to say in this. I think Bradley Cooper does really well. Um, You know, I think uh, I just I think there could have been better casting here. I think he does fine. I don't think he ruins anything.
1: I'm so I'm so happy to hear you say that
0: because
1: (laughs) I am a fan of Bradley Cooper.
0: Yeah, he's fine.
1: Especially his performance in A Star is Born, which I think is amazing for about five different reasons. He tries awfully hard and almost pulls it off. His theatrical voice when we get to Chicago is wonderful and odd. Suddenly when we're in Chicago, he sounds completely different. Um, But I am going to argue that in Nightmare Alley, Brad Cooper is miscast. And I believe I can prove this with a factoid (laughs) that I picked up on the Wikipedia machine this morning. Okay. Originally, Stanton Carlyle in the Guillermo del Toro (laughs) version was going to be played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I knew that, yeah. Now, I would like all of your listeners to imagine what that might have been like. Uh, If only because I think DiCaprio's better at playing bad guys And whether del Toro knew it or not, when del Toro starts his film by giving us the protagonist's backstory, you're not going to be able to play sympathetic protagonist for as long as you did with Tyrone Power. Because, oh my God, what we see is bad. And then, no spoilers, very, very much later in the film, we get the entire backstory. Which is just horrific. Yeah. Um, I got home and I was talking to my wife about the movie and she was like, wait, what now? Um, what do we see him do? And it's like, um, not to make a bad pun, but that's awfully cold, dude.
0: That's <laughs> awfully cold. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> dude. But that, like, I, I just, I felt like his performance was, all right, so uh, th- have I told you about my two different types of performances? There's there are people who can transform into a character and then there are people who are performative. And they can both be good, like yeah. you know, but it's just you have your Daniel Day-Lewis's, you know, that just somehow become Transforms. this thing, yeah. And then you have your I would even say Leonardo DiCaprio in my book is like one of those performative guys. Like every time I see Leonardo DiCaprio with the exception of a few movies, I see him and I think that's Leonardo DiCaprio acting as someone else, but he's hmm. so good. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's still good. No, no, I, it's I just, understand. I know it's him playing the character, you know, like I never feel like he fully transforms. Bradley Cooper is in the latter category for me. And I don't mean him being performative in that way. Okay. I feel like his performance, it's like, he's trying real hard. Like you put it, you know what I mean? He's there's something about him trying real hard, but I got to say, again, vague. I don't want to go any further than this. The very last scene of this film. Yes. Taking the Xanic editions out or whatever. I'm talking the last scene is brilliant to me. And his performance is is also brilliant in that last moment. His performance of the last shot, which neither of us
1: will spoil, um, is what the Zanuck version wasn't allowed to do. Because what it suggests is very dark and very horrifying. And what's worse than being damned? It's this. being damned <laughs> and knowing it. That he has the knowledge of what's happening, he's not unaware. No, uh, the last shot I love and the last line is justifiably famous.
0: Oh, dude, it's so good. I'm like thinking about it, almost getting chills. It's just that last 60 seconds or whatever. I mean, dude, that is gold to me. So, so speaking, I, speaking of the last line, uh, the author of the novel,
1: I yeah. discovered, William uh, Lindsay Gresham, um, actually ended his life committing suicide in the hotel suite. Where he wrote the first draft of Nightmare Alley. <laughs> oh my so God! If, if the book, if the book and the movie aren't dark enough, well then, truth is stranger than fiction, baby. Look it up. That is
0: intense. Yeah, it really give is. me more of that. All right. Uh, oh, I mean, I don't God. want, I don't want that to happen to anyone. But I mean, like, well, yeah. <laughs> if anything,
1: all of this made me want to read the book. Yeah. Um. To to confirm my suspicions about what. Tora Toro was finally able to use after, you know, 60 years. And it can't be
0: that long. We got to just tackle this. I bet the book. No, it be was,
1: still. it was popular fiction. It was a popular book. Yeah. Um, Critics at the time when the film was released in 47, there were a lot of critics who dismissed it and said, why are they filming this trash? Because it wasn't considered serious literature.
0: Yeah. It was a potboiler. Well, it is grim and I mean bleak as hell, dude. And you have all the noir trappings of the fatalism, uh the con man, the femme fatale, all of the things you need. Uh this film though though I it could easily be argued as a noir, not to get into like the the trivial bullshit, yeah. but like it felt very almost fairy tale to me. And that's a very Del Toro thing. Um but there's like I don't know, it was just something about the way it's shot, how everything incl- like everything looks intentional. Not so much realistic, intentional, if you get my my differentiation there. And it just it's
1: interesting. It's interesting that you bring up fairy tale because some critics have pointed out that this might be the first Del Toro film with no supernatural element. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like uh that that's what's so strange to me. It's almost I don't know, it's like a weird, strange marriage of of things. But anyways, so, so we talked about Bradley Cooper. We both agree that miscast. There are better people. He doesn't ruin the movie. He does fine. I just, Oh, I wish there was just like that person that could really take it home. Um, but no Tyrone power. Uh, but I will tell you someone who did knock it out of the park for me, JB, and that's Kate Blanchett as Dr. Lilith Ritter. If there's ever been a character written for an actress, I think this is the one and I think Kate Blanche is just the best. So like she, I think she's just she's always very, good. But unlike She's very good. Yeah, um, unlike another Cooper, person go ahead.
1: Another person I would I would um single out and I was thinking this morning of the first time I ever saw this gentleman in a film. Um I wanted to actually see more of David Strather yeah, because I love him so much and I remember I think it was the early 80s at the beginning of indie film fun. Um, I remember going to see return of the Say caucus seven and seeing him for the first time in a movie in a very small part and just being knocked out by this guy who who's this guy. And of course he later becomes part of John sales stock company. He is a minor character, but he was so entertaining. I wished he was in the movie more.
0: Yeah. I feel like he didn't become a big player. He was in stuff since when you said like for years and years, but I feel like good night and good luck just put him on the map. Am I wrong?
1: Yeah. No, that sucks
0: because he's so good.
1: That might be the first time that he ever played a lead. And certainly it was astute of George Clooney to recognize just how talented he is. I mean, I don't think he's ever given a bad performance. In fact, he was just in Chicago doing a one man show at the Chicago Shakespeare theater. Although I forget who he was playing. It's one of those give him hell, Harry one man shows. Yeah. Um,
0: oh, it had to be that secret honor. He to. was Nixon. Yeah, definitely. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. No, 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 no. That's <laughs> Philip Baker Hall. I know, I know. Don't confuse beloved character actors. No, no. Um, no, he's, oh my God. Okay. So Kate, I think Kate Blanchett's perfect. I think David Streth, Oh my gosh. I agree with you. He should have been in it. First off, he is such a vital character, yeah, to this film, and he's not in it enough. Nor do they. Again, well, fuck it. I'm getting into comparisons a little bit, but like in the original, I think they play that better. That relationship that not only uh, that not only uh, what's his name Pete. I think yeah, that Pete has uh, with Xena. Uh, but also that Pete has with, uh, Stanton in terms yeah. of what happens to Pete carries a lot of weight in the original. In this one, I actually like the relationship that Pete has with Stanton, but for the purposes of the film, I don't think it tells that story as well. If you get my drift. Although he- later, later we get the callback in Lilith's office that
1: Stanton is. I have no reason to doubt him that Stanton does feel guilty about yeah. what transpired between him and Pete.
0: Yeah. And and but I just like one thing I'll say is for, for dude, for as much as I like the original guy, i I'm spacing his name it's Ian something, I believe, but whoever played the Ian original Keith. Thank Ian you. Keith,
1: who's in the Ten Commandments
0: as the first Ramses. <laughs> I you know, I think Keith's awesome. But he plays that role. How do I say this? He plays that role like a traditional character actor would play a drunk guy. And he does yeah. it so well. Like, I actually really liked Pete. But, but Strathern brings... He brings... He gives it personality.
1: There's more depth of meaning to his shabby alcoholic tragedy.
0: You can't... St- yeah. It's, you, it's kind of an amazing thing to watch, which is why I wanted more of it. Exactly. You can't re- with Ian Keith, he just looks like a guy that n- always worked behind the scenes. You know what I mean? But with Strathairn, yeah. you see him working behind the scenes, but you see, he used to be a main guy. We believe and, that he was a
1: player and that part of his tragedy is that he no longer is.
0: Yeah. And he walks out of the room. Uh, with uh, 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 Zena and Stan at one point. And as he's leaving, after she gives him some money to go get some food because he keeps drinking all the time, and he's, you know, walking to the door uh, talking about what he's going to get. He's going to get these eggs. He's going to get blah, blah, blah. And as he opens the door, he's about to leave. He goes, um, he goes, uh, I forget. Uh, uh, au revoir, mon chéri. And he just like twists his wrist. And it's very, very showy. And you just these yeah. little hints of what he used to be come out. Um, And and it's interesting. Earlier, earlier there's a scene
1: where he, he makes a cigarette appear. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a, kind of a hokey corny magic trick, but it comes across as just such a wonderful reminder of what he used to be.
0: Yeah. And, and, and and in that way, I think, I think I like Pete a lot more here, of course, not just because it's Strathairn, but it's like, I love the personality and character he brings to this otherwise overlooked character, possibly you yeah. know what I mean, um, or, or or plot device. But he's like he's like meaningful here, and I may prefer the way that they told that story in the original. But man, I just really love Strathern and, and Pete here.
1: In the remake, I think we believe that the Strathern Pete could have come up with that system, whereas in the original. I, I I I doubt that that the character Ian Keith is playing could have come up with so elaborate of 100%. a scam.
0: And 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 to I add believe to that, that Strathern was capable of it. To add to that, Strathern's Pete, whenever they are showing, uh, when Zena, I'm using pronouns here, when Zena and Pete show Stan their code. Now, the code is treated very differently in both films. In one, yeah. it is under lock and key. No one can touch it. In the other, it's kind of like, eh, it's this cool thing people want to give us money for. We'll show you. You know, that kind of a thing. Um, but whenever they show Stan, when they, when they just kind of, they aren't showing him how it works, but they're showing him what it is. And you see Xena in the background, played by Tony Collette. And she's saying these things about Stan. And Pete is sitting there. I I think, I can't remember if he's blindfolded or not, but his eyes are closed, whichever. The point is, he's sitting in this chair, he can't see anything. And he starts doing the tricks that we talked about earlier. The, you know, what are you holding up? You know, it's a pocket watch, blah, blah, blah. And then Stan just doesn't buy it. And he's just like, you know, what's like, what's going on here? And he comes and sits down and you see Pete break him, right? Like Stan becomes the mark hard. And they do this in the original film, too. I find it particularly more effective here, though both are effective. And it's because of Strathern's performance. Because Cooper, you watch his face go from, like, this is such, like, what's going on here? This is a trick to, like, I believe you. Like, he gets him. But it's Pete, dude. And he's just, it's just this perfect performance to, like, sell this mark, right? And then, and, he, then Pete, and then he And then Pete p- explains it. Yeah, but then Pete just goes, aha! And that's how it works. And it just breaks out of it instantly. And you're yeah. like, as a viewer, I was a mark for 30 seconds just. Th-. You know what I mean? Like Definitely. I bought it. And then
1: Strathern and then Strathern pops the balloon. Like, dude, everyone has daddy issues.
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And of course, you know, Willem Defoe is always great uh just because he's willem defoe I, I i brought up ron perlman earlier because i love that he's the strong man in this and i don't know if this is a coincidence but he was also the strong man in a film that i love so much called the Lo- the city of lost children um oh, yeah. and he was the strong man and, and one of the leads uh in the film uh and it's a french film i think it's from 95 something like that 97 somewhere somewhere around there And uh, man, I love that movie, but he plays the strong man in a circus again, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so he's that here. So I loved seeing that. Um, I haven't really been wowed by like a Ron Perlman performance in a while, but it's like, I just loved, I felt very just joyful seeing him as a strong man. Um, He's great. Again, uh, I mean, you just can't go wrong with uh, Richard Kinkins, as it says, uh, but Richard Jenkins is great. <laughs> um, and then like, of course, you know, getting into a little bit of comparison here again, I'm passing this off to you. Tony Collette as Zena. I, I actually really love Tony Collette and I don't really have a problem with her performance here, but it's more of maybe the writing of Zena. I feel like I got a lot more out of the original. Like I feel like Zena meant something more. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two things at work here. In terms of the
1: script of the remake, Tony Collette and Rooney Mara are given very little to work with. Yes, and then if you look at the original, Zena is Joan Blondell, <laughs> who is one of my favorite character actors. In fact, the other night Turner Classic Movies was showing Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three, yeah. and there's Joan Blondell. And good lord, what a career she had! Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three. To Greece, she's the sympathetic waitress in Greece. Right before <laughs> a beauty school dropout, my God, what a career! Yeah. So, a, I think it's the script of the remake, but I also think that uh, if you think you're going to outact Joan
0: Blondell, you might have another thing coming. Joan Blondell is delightful. Absolutely, I think both of them had great performances, but like you said, I think the writing is really the difference yeah. there. Because uh, Joan Blondell's given a chance to really shine. I mean, I thought she was going to be like the top yeah. person the whole movie, and then you realize eventually she gets dropped, and you are like, wow. ideally,
1: ideally we need a version where Joan Blondell is married to David Strather. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. really need.
0: Yeah, that would actually be perfect. You know, somebody who surprised me, and we can't ruin anything with this because it's going to be very tempting because you kind of hinted at something earlier, but Mary Steenburgen. Yes. Has a very small role. If you don't know who Mary Steenburgen is, for you youngsters, it's uh it is uh James Kahn's wife and elf. Uh she was also in like a billion other things. I don't even know like where to start with that. Uh, you Melvin give-
1: and Howard. Yeah. And yeah. also she was on that wonderful television
0: show, The Last Man on Earth,
1: that got canceled <laughs> yeah. way too quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was. Yep. And uh, but I mean she was in I mean she's in Back to the Future and all kinds of stuff. Uh and so um or actually, I, th- I think it was part three. Yeah, she was the yes. she was in the third Back to the Future. She's um, in the Western one. Yeah, but she is actually surprisingly good in the moments she's given to shine here. I thought to the point and of I, I wondered, remember her after watching it.
1: I wondered if perhaps at some point there was more of that because there's a one sheet poster. There's a series of posters for this film with the with the leads, but Mary Steenburgen made the poster. There's a poster that's a big close-up of Mary Steenburgen, so that's odd because she's in two scenes. Yeah, she's in, she uh, her and Tim Blake Nelson are not in this film very much, um, although yeah. Mary Steenburgen's in it twice as much as Tim Blake Nelson, if you're keeping score. <laughs>
0: That's true. And Clifton Collins Jr., which you might not know the name uh, for uh, folks listening, but you would certainly know the face. Let me He was in um, Star Trek, Capote, Traffic, The Last Castle. I mean, uh, Lucky Day, which came out a couple years ago. What else was he in? Um, I want to put in a
1: plug for The Last Castle. Um, lately, when I cannot sleep, which is most nights, uh, you can reliably find the Last Castle on cable at 3 a.m. God, what a sleeper! That's a great movie. That's a great <laughs> un- overlooked movie.
0: I love that. Uh, yeah, he's uh, Clifton Collins Jr. If you see his face again, you'll know him. But he's in like one scene also, and this is this is this year's thing. I'm convinced. You get there have been several movies that have these incredibly large casts. And clearly, they paid them a, a, a nice sum of money to shoot for one day or two days or something, and they can get this because the French Dispatch as well oh, has. Oh my God! And in, I mean, to say it might be the largest and most like vibrant cast. Anderson's the French had. Dispatch has a cast that's an army. Um, uh,
1: Henry Winkler's in it, <laughs> He's so and good. I've I've now seen it twice. I don't think he has any lines. He he only, yeah. I Oh, no, you're right.
0: I think, yeah. Bob, Bob Balaban talks, but yeah. he doesn't. I think he just shakes his head. But that's He's like. He's simply there as an icon. So many people are there just like that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you see them. Visually, for, visually. Yeah, you just see them for one second. They're gone. And, and So it's like, you know, under that, this one probably has the next most amount of people who are on it for a handful of scenes and then gone. You know what I mean? Um, so, I mean, more power to, him. I guess uh, it's, it's fun to see all these people. I didn't know half the people in this movie were even in it nightmare alley. I don't, I don't, if I don't, if I know I'm going to see something, I often don't even watch a trailer. Like I'll just go which into I think it. it.
1: Which I think is to the film's advantage going in, knowing of course about Bradley Cooper and Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, that's fine. But if, if that's the limit of your knowledge I think you'll enjoy the film more because then it just becomes this wonderful parade of character actors that we all love.
0: Yeah. And if you've gotten this far into the podcast and you just heard JB say that we've ruined it for you. So <laughs> 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 no, um, but uh, no, you know, I, 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 I do want to pass it off to you in just a second to do comparisons. Like, I just want to hear your thought 47 versus 2021. Like, like what works for you what doesn't kind of a thing in just a second but I do want to say that uh the this Guillermo del Toro film is I mean you know here's the thing with me and del Toro I absolutely adore Pan's Labyrinth probably one of my all-time favorites I think it's an absolute masterpiece I even like The Devil's Backbone which I think is actually really awesome especially for like uh, what many people consider just sh- like a horror movie I feel like it's like more than that almost like calling Pan's Labyrinth a horror movie it's like there's a lot more to that it's, it's um, but permissive. the devil's backbone though I, I you know if you're gonna call it a horror film which is fine I don't mind but it's like uh it's just like more than that but I just sometimes at that era of of del Toro I just hate the way certain things look like usually when he uses like CG or something like I hate in oh, the devil's yeah. backbone I hate the boy with the blood coming. It's like important mm-hmm. to the narrative, but it just looks yeah. so stupid to me that I just don't like it. But aside from those things, I've always liked him. And then he got into like Pacific Rim era where I didn't like him anymore. <laughs> and then uh he came back to me with The Shape of Water, which I wasn't as high on as other people though I think it is really good. But man, there's something about this movie I actually just like really liked. And I'm just curious before I get into my take on it here, like where do you sit with this film, loving the 1947 one so much? And is there anything that you think this film does better beyond what I've already pointed out, like Pete maybe, or you know, because of Straight Than of course. But in your own words though, is there anything in this film you think is, does better?
1: I don't think it does anything better. And I think there's a curious remove. And it might, again, have something to do with the fact that I'm very familiar with the 1947 version and I hold it close to my heart. I find the 1947 version more involving and more emotionally involving. The del Toro version holds me at something of a distance and parts of it come across like fan fiction, like he so loves film noir that now that he finally gets to make a film noir, he hasn't made a film noir. He's made a coffee table book about film noir yes. where all of these famous actors finally get to play noir noir characters. <laughs> and that I found it, I didn't find it engaging. I found it fun to watch and really fun to look at, but it never actually grabbed me. The original version grabbed me by the throat the first time I saw it and sort of carried me along. And maybe that's because I saw the original first, but it's not just the length that bothers me about the remake. I never got emotionally involved. I looked at it as an exercise in noir as opposed to something like Chinatown, which does not to me, come across like an exercise in noir, I find Chinatown very engaging emotionally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I you, I really like the distinction you just made. You kind of pinpointed, I used the term fairy tale loosely. There was just something about it, but I think it's the coffee table book version of someone trying to make a noir is yeah. what I'm trying to get at, you know? Because like there are moments where Bradley Cooper will say a very noir y noir line. And I'm like, that you does mentioned not, that does not work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because
1: it'd be <laughs> as well as well as he says the last line, which you pointed out. Um, again, I I think this might have had something to do with the fact that they, they shut down production for eight months, and they actually did the Chicago second half before the first half. Yeah, but after the jump, when Stanton is now a famous nightclub entertainer. Cooper's voice changes. And I put it down to, well, this is show business, Stanton. And yeah. he's doing a show business voice, but it's it's quite odd.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's the reason. You know what I mean? And at least that's how I interpret it as well. Um, but yeah, I just uh man, it I know I know that you prefer the 47 version as a very close place to your heart. Um, and as someone who just saw both of them for the first time this last week, you know what I mean? Um, I, I get really torn because I really love what the 1947 film is doing. And, and I love film history. So it's very easy for me to watch that movie in its time and like think about how insane this would have been for 1947 and, and all of that. But when I think about just pure entertainment – for me, if I want if I want to look at it that way, I was more entertained with the Guillermo del Toro version. That's interesting because it's a coffee table book, and every scene looks incredible, and I can just like sit back and enjoy it. But like you said, I'm not engaging with it as much. I'm not and wrestling maybe, with it.
1: And maybe there's nothing wrong with a coffee table book. the The latest ridiculous argument on the Twitter machine is the fact that uh, some movies aimed at adults aren't doing quite as well as they. And so Nightmare Alley and West Side Story are not burning up the box office, but Spider-Man is. Clearly, I want all of your listeners to go see it. So what I'm saying is, um, back on the website that is my home, after this movie, I am often known as the quibbler, that I will quibble with things. So do not take my quibbles with this film. To be me, not endorsing it. I think everyone should go see it. There's very few things out right now that are as good. I would suggest that you should see Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, and that you should also see Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. For some reason, films for adults
0: are not doing very well this holiday season. S- side note: uh, Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish with my thoughts here real quick, and then I have a question for you. Uh, I second that. Uh, by no means will nightmare alley probably end up on my top 10, even though I like it a lot. Um, it's currently cause I keep literally all the movies that I see ranked through the year. Wow. It's actually currently number 12 and I still have a ton of movies I think will be in my top 10 to see <laughs> like, you know, stuff like Spencer and licorice pizza. And there's a couple um, things that
1: are hard to see until Christmas.
0: Exactly. So anyways, uh, but, but, you know, that is still saying something at where I am at this point in the year. It's number 12. So it's like, you know, I actually really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I strongly encourage you to go check it out. Because like you said, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot, if anything, better right now. Definitely not no. in theaters. Um, my question to you before we wrap up here uh, is a complete tangent. Did you see West Side Story? Yes. How do you feel about just, can you give me two cents here? Because I haven't seen it, so I'll probably cover it at some point when I see it. I'm just curious what you think, because I'm so torn on this one.
1: It's magnificent in every sense of the word. Um, It's nice that Steven Spielberg finally makes a musical. And Tony Kushner, uh, the author of Angels in America, did the uh, adaptation of the original Broadway show. And some of the twists... That he brings to the new version are revelatory and very, very clever. I don't wanna spoil it, but uh, Rita Marino, who played Anita in the original version, um, is in the remake as the character that was originally Doc, the guy who owns the drugstore where Tony works. And what they do with the Rita Marino character is transformative. Um, She has a song at the end of the movie. That reduced my entire audience to
0: tears. That's crazy. You know I don't
1: I, think obviously, some people have a problem with musicals, and some people have a problem with films that are longer than ninety minutes. But you won't see a better movie this year than West Side story,
0: yeah. and and Rita Marino is great. So I'm looking forward to seeing saying that I actually like musicals some people act like I don't and if you can believe it I like musicals all right uh but I just like you know I saw this year I saw Dear Evan Hansen and that was really <laughs> terrible I thought <laughs> and then uh tick tick boom I was not a fan of so a lot of people automatically take that as like I hate At musicals it's like yo dude there are all kinds of different musicals and I like a little of all of them, all right? These just ain't it, all right? So <laughs> uh, the, so I'm uh, actually looking forward to this.
1: For the 33 years that I taught film, uh, the highest mountain every semester was a unit I taught on the Hollywood musical because young people uh, do not like when the plot stops for people to sing because they're largely there for the plot. And many young people have one criterion uh, for movies, that they should be realistic. And of course, musicals are not realistic because about every 10 minutes, people sing and dance. But every year, that was a very interesting unit to try and convince young people that this is a viable American entertainment institution (laughs) and is full of pleasures. Um, part of the key, if you're trying to convince someone to like musicals is you need to show them singing in the rain, uh, which I maintain is a musical for people who hate musicals.
0: All right. All right. I'll keep that in mind. I, I would, now I just want to talk about musicals, so I'm going to stop, but, um, <laughs> no, I, so with nightmare alley, like I said, I am, uh, I'm a fan. Uh, any last words beyond encouraging people to check it out at the very least so that people don't think adult movies suck?
1: Yeah, we need to get older people back in the theater because, unfortunately, one of the things COVID did was got a certain segment of the population really into streaming. <laughs> and in the, words of, in the words of George Costanza and, and many episodes of Seinfeld, we're living in a society that there are pleasures to be had by leaving the house and seeing an entertainment with strangers in masks.
0: There you go. All right. Well, uh, that is our take on both Nightmare Alley's 1947 version and 2021. We also got a little West Side Story in there. Um, You know, and uh, yeah, a little bit of comparison. But honestly, I think they're both worth seeing. Definitely seek out the original, especially if you're a fan of noir. Um, Yeah, it was a, a pleasant surprise. It was one of those I always considered kind of a fringe noir based on what I knew about it. One of those ones that's just kind of... You know, it's not like super hard boiled Humphrey Bogart yeah. Maltese Falcons, like this kind of fringe, but uh yeah, after seeing it, uh, certainly a treat. And then again, this Guillermo del Toro film is I, th- I think part of like what you said about some of the critics saying this is the least fairy tale, like the the le- there's no like magic or anything. There's, maybe that's something that got me, even though I love that stuff, like uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, there's wow. no real magic.
1: It's the magic of film.
0: <laughs> yeah. But anyways, all right, we're gonna get off here. As always, JB, thanks a lot. Go check out uh F this movie. Tell them where they can find you again, please. Uh, you should go to
1: Fthismovie.com, where we're about to embark on a bunch of stuff at the end of the year, including the celebrated, underrated, overrated, and ugly podcast, and then our top 10 for the year. Uh Fthismovie.com, movie love for movie lovers.
0: There you go. And I am definitely calling upon you, JB, to call and leave a voicemail on what your favorite is after that episode's done. Because I pride myself on Medium Cool for being the last goddamn person to put their top 10 up because I have to take most of fucking January to watch them all. So anyways... (laughs) I'll send you a text. (laughs) All right. But all right, we're going to get off here. Thank you guys for listening. Again, as always, JB, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. As always, a pleasure as well talking to JB. Uh, Every time he's on, I always have a great time because we're just big film nerds and we just love geeking out. I always love his perspectives and all the little trivia that he knows. He knows far more trivia than I do. Uh, But like I said, next week uh, is kind of a wild card. I'm probably going to end up, unless I have some special guest that I pull out of my ass, Uh, especially with the holidays coming up. My plan is to just do another kind of 2021 cram, try to knock out several movies. Uh, I think it'd be pretty fun. Again, I'll definitely be talking about The French Dispatch uh, and I will definitely uh, be talking about No Sudden Move, which is the Steven Soderbergh film. I'll have other movies to talk about as well, for sure. Uh, I'll definitely fit those in. If I get a chance to see Licorice Pizza before I can record next episode, uh then awesome i'll do that we will be out of town my family and i will be out of town until uh, next monday which means i will have to record that entire episode that day so next week's episode may be postponed to you know possibly friday or sorry not friday Uh, it might be postponed to like wednesday or something Uh, i might have to push back the release date of next week's episode but either way to be the last one of the year and uh, I'm looking very, very forward to it. So uh, anyways, thank you guys so much for sticking around, listening to our thoughts on Nightmare Alley. I sincerely hope you go check out Nightmare Alley. Um, you know, it was um, uh, like a four out of five type movie for me, the Guillermo del Toro film. Uh, I actually think I, I I, might actually like it a little bit better than the 1947 version. The 1947 version I think is a better film. But man, that the Guillermo del Toro's film is just so easy to watch and so f- like i don't know i hate to say fun because it's such a bummer uh but uh hey i have fun with bummers i guess so it's cool anyways uh go check it out though it, it's an it's an interesting watch honestly it is I, i'm even still now after talking about it after seeing it uh i feel like i'm still processing it and stuff and i, I like movies like that i'm processing my feelings more than the film the film's easy to follow But anyways, all that said, hey, I love all of you. Thank you so, so much for listening. And as always, good night, good luck, and take it easy.